0: Welcome to Think Health, I'm Shane Anderson. This episode starts with a classic Australian pastime, smoking. In the 1970s, just under half of Australia's adult population were smokers.
1: Anyhow, what I have got here is a new brand of cigarettes, Winfield.
0: A good look at them. nowadays ads like these are unheard of but back then the tobacco industry relied on marketing like this to convince people to forget the growing body of evidence indicating the risks of smoking in spite of the PR campaigns over the next few decades smoking rates did decline but not as fast as you would think by the time the 21st century rolled around, there was still an estimated 19,000 deaths each year from smoking related illnesses. I'll
1: land you back the bars and the boys in the band. So in
0: 2012, the Australian government, led by the Labor Party, decided to do something about it. The Australian government is taking on the big tobacco companies in a bid to reduce smoking-related diseases.
2: Gone will be product names in branded fonts or their logos. From next January, the only difference between packs will be a tiny reference to the product name in a uniform font. We are going to ensure that in Australia there are no remaining avenues for tobacco companies to market and promote their products.
0: Plain packaging laws meant that all the branding was replaced with graphic health warnings. And tobacco companies didn't take this well.
2: Tobacco firms are crying foul. They are threatening legal action to defend their brands.
1: Once the government takes away our intellectual property, we've lost that point.
0: One company, Philip Morris, was particularly outraged. After years of threatening the Australian government with legal action, Philip Morris followed through on it they sued the Australian government. Philip Morris v. Australia took over six years to arbitrate, and it cost the government nearly $40 million to defend it. Philip Morris eventually lost the case, but it left people wondering exactly how much power corporations have over the laws of a nation. And could something like this happen again? That's all coming up on the show. Cases like this have not only happened since Philip Morris v. Australia, but they were happening well before the government decided to bring about plain packaging. And it's all because of one thing, one legal mechanism you probably haven't heard of, but its impacts are enormous. And it poses a huge potential challenge, not only to future public health policies, but also to the environment. It's called ISDS, or...
2: Investor State Dispute Settlement. It's investors suing states through a dispute process.
0: This is Patricia Ranald, convener of the Australian Fair Trade and Investment Network, or AFTERNET for short. It's this ISDS clause that allows a corporation to sue a country. They were originally designed to give foreign investors some kind of assurance that their investment will be protected – It's mostly intended to be used in cases of expropriation, meaning when the state takes something for public use. But in practice, Patricia says ISDS takes the term pretty loosely. It's not only this straightforward seizing of, say, running the National Post or the Waterworks.
2: But what they call indirect expropriation, and that can mean any law or policy which might reduce the value of their investment.
0: And over the years, it's come to mean a lot more too
2: if they can argue that they didn't receive what's called fair and equitable treatment, and that means they weren't properly consulted about a new law or it didn't meet their legitimate expectations of what the regulatory environment would be.
0: So those are the legal grounds for an ISDS case. But not any corporation can sue any government. First of all, it has to be a foreign investor. So a company based in, say, Hong Kong, like Philip Morris – investing in a country like Australia. And both of these countries have to have already agreed to ISDS in the first place. But ISDS isn't something people sit down to shake hands on. You can really only find them in one place, buried inside trade agreements.
1: You might have heard of NAFTA, also known as the North American Free Trade Agreement.
2: Well, the Trans-Pacific Partnership, the TPP, will be the world's largest free trade
0: These regional trade agreements are the mega-deals signed between lots of different countries. ISDS can also be found in bilateral trade agreements. Korea and Canada have finally reached an agreement on a bilateral free trade pact.
3: Kenya expects to sign a number of trade agreements with the US tomorrow at the sidelines of the US-Kenya Business Forum.
0: Free trade agreements are huge, often secret deals, hundreds of pages long. An ISDS is a really small part of these agreements. So if you're thinking that investor state dispute settlement sounds like an obscure clause buried in an obscure, dense agreement, you would be totally right. But the Philip Morris v. Australia case isn't an anomaly.
1: Looking empirically, there are 855 known treaty-based investor state arbitrations. Uh, 548 of those disputes have been concluded. 297 are pending.
0: This is Matthew Rimmer, Professor of Intellectual Property and Innovation Law at the Queensland University of Technology. Let's take a look at some of the ISDS decisions made last year. According to the United Nations Conference on Trade and Development, there were 73 decisions handed down in 2017. And these are cases like TransCanada vs. USA, Bear Creek Mining Corporation vs. Peru, Infinito Gold vs. Costa Rica, Beijing Shogun vs. Mongolia, Tetian Copper vs. Pakistan. All these have something in common. They're mining companies.
1: One of the big beneficiaries of investor state dispute settlement has been multinational mining companies. It's kind of remarkable how many actions have been brought.
0: There is a huge skew in ISDS arbitrations towards cases involving public health and the environment. Take, for example, Bear Creek Mining versus Peru. Now, Bear Creek Mining is a Canadian-based corporation that was planning to open a mining project in a region called Santa Ana, which is near the border with Bolivia. The local community were worried about the impact this mine would have on their water reserve, particularly the nearby Lake Titicaca, which is vital to the local economy. Protests were violent. At least five people were killed. So in response, the government canceled the Bear Creek Mines license. Bear Creek Mining used the ISDS clause in the Canada-Peru Free Trade Agreement to take the government of Peru to tribunal, where they won. The tribunal decided the government of Peru owed Bear Creek Mining 20 million US dollars. Matthew Rimmer says that in ISDS cases, there's actually a slightly higher chance that the state will win. So it's no guarantee that a foreign corporation suing a government will actually be successful. But even if you win, it's still a lot for a government to go through. Cases take years to arbitrate, and the government has to front the costs of its own representation. For a government like Australia, it's not too hard to absorb $40 in legal fees. It is a tough sell to the taxpayer, but it's not going to damage the overall GDP. But for smaller nations, some of which have an economy dependent on the industries these corporations bring, ISDS can be a lot harder to face. Why would people enter into these deals that don't seem like they're that great for a government?
3: We have to look at how economics has come to dominate politics.
0: This is Carl Rhodes. He is Professor of Organisation Studies at the University of Technology Sydney's Business School.
3: It's the domination of economic factors over political ones, with the belief that, well, if we give up some political power, we will gain back in terms of economic benefit. And so in this case, um, uh, with giving up these rights through the investor state dispute settlements, the so-called economic benefits uh, are seen as greater than what is lost politically.
0: So it's not uncommon for a company to enter into these free trade deals for the perceived economic benefits. But even then, these benefits could be wiped out by one successful ISDS case. What's more, ISDS is one-sided. A state can't sue an investor if it's the corporation that changes its mind. So this still doesn't really explain why a state would agree to ISDS. Patricia Reynolds says to understand that, we have to look to its history.
2: Well, originally they were intended to deal with a situation in the post-war decolonisation period where countries that were becoming independent wanted to take over the assets that had been owned by foreign companies under the colonial period.
0: You can trace the justifications for ISDS way back to the mid-20th century. It was when the colonies of places like Britain, France, and Belgium were breaking up as countries sought their own independence. The world was moving from a state of colonisation to decolonization. These newly formed nations wanted control over their own land, and this meant taking over all the industries the colonisers had originally brought. But the corporations didn't go quietly during this transition – businesses that had invested in, say, getting an electricity supply running, they weren't happy with just packing up and leaving. They felt that they were owed something in return.
2: The whole idea of compensation for international companies was about having their assets seized and actually getting compensation for assets. But what has happened is that The companies themselves have influenced governments to expand the definition and built up a whole sort of legal system of investment law.
0: Is it intentionally pitting environmental interest against corporate interest?
3: Well, I mean, I don't know if it's intentional, but I certainly would imagine that would be one of the effects. If you can invoke this dispute settlement based on the threats of investment, what kind of laws will be will be questioned? It will be labor laws, it will be health-based laws, environmental laws, indigenous rights. So all of these things which in a democratic society should be considered as part of the rights of the people now can be questioned in the name of corporate interests. This is really an affront to the principles of democracy on which countries like this are based.
0: Yeah, do you, do you think it is a question of sovereignty?
3: I think it's absolutely a question of sovereignty. If foreign corporations can bypass our laws while operating in here, more generally, it's a loss of state sovereignty and as a result, a loss of popular sovereignty in the fact that the state represents you, me and, and, and everyone else who's a citizen of the country.
0: after the break why Australia is both the villain and the victim in the ISDS debate. Listening to Think Health. It's hard to measure the impact of ISDS clauses. The cases tend to be obscure and convoluted, wrapped up in the impenetrable legalese of international trade law. So far, we've seen the financial impact of ISDS, countries having to pay out tens of millions of dollars to foreign corporations. But is the threat alone of a lawsuit enough to stop regulations from even being implemented in the first place?
1: Uh, my name is Max Bonnell. I'm a lawyer based in Sydney uh, and a partner in the firm White and Case.
0: Max is a specialist in international arbitration for a law firm with a swanky office in Sydney overlooking the harbor. By his own admission, he's had a pretty extensive career.
1: Look, I've done a lot of work for renewables companies. I've done a lot of work for coal companies. I've worked for tobacco companies. To confess all my sins, I've twice defended Alan Jones on defamation cases.
0: He's also worked on a lot of ISDS cases, many of them he can't talk about. But there is one he can.
1: Probably the, the case I've done that's best known in this area which is the case of White Industries and India.
0: So White Industries is an Australian-based supplier of metal castings and components.
1: For over half a
2: century, the White family has been building on the long heritage of casting the future of Australia's industry.
1: My client, White Industries, went into India to develop a coal mine. When it went in, it provided Coal India with a performance guarantee.
0: This guarantee was a sum of money that the local government contractor was supposed to give back at the end of the project, with a bonus for doing a good job.
1: The project concluded and White Industries asked for its performance guarantee back. Coal India said, no, we're not happy with the job you did, you can't have it.
0: White Industries decided to sue. This was just your average lawsuit through the Indian court system. Unfortunately, it took the Indian court system nine years to process it. Eventually, white industries were sick of waiting, and they decided to go one step above. Led by Max, white industries took the government of the Republic of India to an ISDS tribunal. Their claim wasn't about the guarantee or the bonus. They wanted compensation for the failures of the entire Indian legal system to deal with their case. And white industries won.
1: Oh, the figure was tiny. I mean, the eventual award which we got finished up being about $12 million. In the scheme of of these things, the, the monetary value of this one was minuscule, but the principles underlying it were colossally important.
0: Those principles were a lot to grapple with. To India, a foreign company had just skipped over their entire legal system by invoking an obscure clause they didn't even know they had agreed to until they were sued.
1: And that caused enormous shockwaves within India. It was the first time a successful claim had been brought against India. uh, And no one had really understood the potential ramifications of these clauses.
0: It caused India to take a close look at all their free trade agreements. And they realised they had signed around 70 of these deals. They were trapped in a spider's web of ISDS. What's more, Max had done something called treaty shopping. There is no ISDS clause in the Australia-India Free Trade Agreement, but there was one in an agreement India had signed with Kuwait. Max was able to argue that the ISDS in that agreement should also apply in this case, and the ISDS tribunal agreed with him. The doors were wide open for foreign investors to sue India over things like delays in the legal system things that are partly out of their control. The message was clear. If you do something that gets in the way of a corporation's profit, your country could end up on trial. With ISDS clauses in future trade agreements, is it going to be a lot harder for governments to do things in line with looking after the environment, like divesting in coal?
1: The the short answer is yes, it will. Let's say that Australia were to ban the mining of coal for energy tomorrow. It won't happen, but let's say there are a lot of coal mines in Australia that are owned by Indian companies. There are a lot of coal mines in Australia that are owned by Chinese companies. There are coal mines that are owned through Hong Kong companies, and there are coal mines that are owned through Singapore companies. All of those countries have investment agreements with Australia. If they were told to shut their coal mines without compensation tomorrow, they could all bring actions for compensation against the Commonwealth.
0: We have more examples of the threat of ISDS being enough to scare governments away, even if a lawsuit isn't successful.
2: We do have very clear examples when Australia was sued by the Philip Morris Company over our plain packaging legislation. The New Zealand government announced it had been about to introduce the same legislation. It announced it would postpone it until the result of the case was known. It took five years.
0: And it's the same story around the world. In France, in the UK, Norway, Ireland, even Hungary... All these countries waited to see what the outcome of Philip Morris v. Australia was before they did it themselves. The threat of ISDS pushed plain packaging laws around the world back by five years. We're talking about some of the biggest corporations in the world here. And we're talking about things that seem really big to me, like a, a country's government being dwarfed by these massive amounts of money and resources. How does it feel for you, fighting against all this?
2: Well, the good news is that there is a global movement against ISDS, and that's partly why governments are starting to turn away from it. There has been, particularly amongst developing countries, a lot of criticism of ISDS. Why is that? They don't want ISDS because they are the ones who are most often sued.
0: Patricia Reynolds says it's not just developing countries turning against ISDS.
2: The Americans have also agreed to phase out ISDS applying to Canada. They've kept some ISDS provisions for Mexico because there's a lot of US investment in Mexico, but they've they've said it can only really be used for if the Mexican government actually takes over the assets of a company.
0: It's safe to say that Trump isn't phasing it out because he wants to protect the environment. He just doesn't like the idea of getting sued. Specifically, he didn't like it when TransCanada tried to sue the Obama administration to the tune of $15 billion. If you've been playing along at home, the details of this case won't come as a surprise. Yes, TransCanada is a mining company, and the suit was over a license to build the Keystone Pipeline. The licence was cancelled due to environmental protests. You may know these protests. They were called Standing Rock. After the Indian Reservation, the pipeline was meant to go through. They are not to be on our land. Our ancestors are on that land. Our people have come together. So is, it, is Australia moving away from ISDS clauses as well?
2: Well, in Australia, it's only the current government that supports it.
0: Despite the Philip Morris case, our government is all for ISDS, so much so that they've just signed a new agreement with these clauses in it. I'll let Carl Rhodes explain. What's happening with the the TPP?
3: Well, it's uh, 12 countries uh, are involved with it. Australia, New Zealand, Canada, Mexico, Peru, Chile, Japan, Brunei, Singapore... Malaysia and Vietnam. Uh, Donald Trump pulled out a little while ago. That covers uh, 13% of the world economy. It's currently being debated in Parliament in Australia with with the expectation that it should be signed uh, round about November.
0: This is being driven by the coalition, but the Labour Party have also said that they are for the TPP, but against ISDS. They reckon if they get power, they're going to individually talk each of the signing countries out of their ISDS commitments, which everyone I spoke to for this story saw as a bit of a cop-out. So what does something like ISDS clauses tell us about the relationship between multinationals and and governments? Say we could just use Australia as an example Mm -hmm. between the Australian government and multinationals that do business here.
3: Well, it says that the Australian government will uh, do not everything that it takes, but will go to a very far length, including giving up its own sovereignty in order to attract multinationals to this country, because this is a deal for multinational companies. It's not, uh, you know, uh, primarily. And so it says that the Australian government is, to some extent, at their mercy.
0: But is there a counterbalance to corporate power? If people don't like what's happening, what sort of recourse do they have?
3: The most important one is the recourse at the ballot box, the recourse for what you vote for. Um, So politicians may well react to, to corporate pressure but 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 the pressure of losing government or losing your seat is also important so that will be there but i mean as citizens we have to engage our de- democratic rights to criticize the government and to and to make it known but also to criticize corporations and in one hand you know it can be done talking on the radio like this but you know it can be done by by uh, boycotting corporations that uh, are engaged in activities that you're not uh, supportive of but, but putting the, the, the power of democracy, with it, the, the demos in democracy means the people, finding ways to put that, that power back in the hands of the people by speaking up, by dissenting, and by letting, letting that, that be known is the recourse that we have uh, in a democratic system.
0: This show is supported by the University of Technology Sydney and 2SCR. It's recorded at the studios of 2SCR, which sits on Gadigal land of the Eora Nation, whose sovereignty was never ceded. Thank you to Carl Rhodes, Patricia Reynolds and Matthew Rimmer for your help with this episode. If you like what you hear and you want to hear more of the Think programming, hit subscribe in your podcast feed. While you're there, exercise your democratic rights and leave us a review. You can also find out more information about this show on our website. That is 2scr.com slash Think Sustainability. I'm Shane Anderson. Thank you for listening.